We are, at the time of this recording, about a week past Hurricane Laura, the strongest hurricane to strike Louisiana in over 160 years. With winds over 150 miles per hour, Hurricane Laura left at least 1 million people without power. Amazingly, there was a second hurricane, Marco, in the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. The first time that has happened since 1933. We are seeing these rare storm events happen more and more often. Other coastal cities, such as Miami, are dealing with regular flooding during high tides, and fires in California have made headlines recently, causing displacement, property damage, and dangerous air conditions. On top of all this, emergency management is particularly challenging this year given the COVID-19 pandemic. These simultaneous emergencies highlight how interconnected the climate is with health and other aspects of our lives. Climate change is certainly an attention-grabbing and controversial subject, but it is usually discussed in terms of the harm we may be doing to our planet and the cities and towns we live in. But what do we know about how climate change affects our personal health and well-being? Even if the place you live in is not directly hit by a storm, flood, or fire, climate change could still pose health risk. Importantly, these changes do not affect the health of all people or communities equitably, even within the same city. We are increasingly recognizing that climate change exacerbates existing health inequities. For example, historic policies such as redlining can put communities of color in places with less green space, closer to roadways, and in flood zones. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In each episode, we'll look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we're exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health and bring you a look at what we currently know or don't know about these conditions or exposures. Today, we'll be talking about climate change, why it's happening, and how it impacts our health. To do so, I'm joined once again by epidemiologist and associate professor Anna Pollack from George Mason University. Welcome back to Epidemiology Counts, Anna. Hi, so happy to be here with you all. And to help us make sense of the effect of climate on health, we are joined by an expert on the topic, Dr. Brooke Anderson. Anna, could you please introduce Brooke? Sure. Dr. Brooke Anderson is an associate professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Environmental and Radiological Health Sciences. She's also a member of the university's Partnership of Air Quality, Climate, and Health, and is a member of the editorial boards of Epidemiology and Environmental Health Perspectives. She completed a postdoctoral fellowship in biostatistics at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a PhD in engineering at Yale University. Her research focuses on the health risks associated with climate-related exposures, including heat waves and air pollution, for which she has conducted several national-level studies. Dr. Anderson, thank you for joining us for Epidemiology Counts. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about this. Awesome. Thank you, guys. This is great. So to begin with, let's dive right into the controversy. Brooke, could you tell us briefly what is climate change and why is it happening? Sure. Well, let's, um, let's talk first just about the difference between climate and weather, because then we can talk about how that climate part's changing. So um, climate is really what you expect on average, whereas weather is what you get. 
And I think you can think back, you know, if you go back six months to when we were traveling for pleasure, you know how you would get a guidebook. <laughs> and there's that section in the front about the climate for where you're going. And it says things like how hot it usually is in the summer and how cold in the winter and all of that. And so that that's really the climate. But when you actually go and visit, you might get really nice weather or you might get a heat wave or something like that. That weather is what you actually experience when you get there. And so the climate of places have been pretty steady for a long time. So we can print it in a book, right? Whereas the weather, you need to check your weather forecast and cross your fingers. But with climate change, we're actually expecting that those climates, that, that kind of range of what we typically expect is going to change. And that'll include things like the typical range of temperatures, but also how hot it might get during the worst heat waves, and even things like kind of how high the floodwaters get when it floods, or how much rain you get from tropical cyclones. So a, a key reason for that since the industrial revolution uh, we as humans have been emitting a lot more of these greenhouse gases and uh, they kind of trap some of the energy in our atmosphere so our, our our world gets a lot of energy from solar radiation and then some of that we radiate back out and these kind of hold it in so we've just got a slower rate of that energy going going out. And that means that we've got some, some global warming. And because the climate system is so interconnected, it means that it's not just temperatures going up, but it has an impact on the patterns we see for a lot of different things like rainfall rates and tropical cyclones and things like that. Awesome. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for that overview. Um, so which climate related exposures specifically could impact human health? There are so many of them. I mean, climate and weather really play a big role in human health. Uh, for my research, I focus on climate-related disasters. So I focused a lot on heat waves, and then in some of my more recent research, I look a lot at tropical cyclones. But day-to-day -day exposures are really important, too, so just what the temperature is from day-to-day. -day. And in some cases, there, there kind of is a longer pathway between climate or weather and the human health impacts. So for example, temperature and sunlight can play a role in ozone formation. And so you can have these differences in air pollution levels and things like that. Um, there are also these interrelated pathways. So for example, with sea level rise, when you get a, a hurricane coming in because the sea is a little bit higher to start with, the level of flooding is gonna be a little bit higher when it comes in. And then you partner that with the fact that those storms might be more intense. And so you might get a larger storm surge just to start with. Um, it, it can really all be connected. So I, a lot of these are covered in a really wonderful report that was written by an intergovernment agency. Uh, it's called the US Climate and Health assessment. And it's a really important resource. I think it's kind of the first step for anybody interested in this topic. And if you go through, you can just read the table of contents and it kind of goes through all of these different climate related exposures and climate related impacts that, that you can have. So things like temperature and air quality and, and extreme events and even things like food safety and availability. It's really kind of amazing how many ways you can think of that there can be pathways towards human health from starting from climate and weather. Mm, yeah, of course. But well, so let, let's be specific, though, about what are some so obviously, you know, other than the obvious of being injured or killed directly in a storm or a fire or flooding, you know, obviously, we, we know that it can directly impact you that way. But what are some of the maybe more indirect health outcomes affected by climate that people that our listeners may not be aware of? 
Yeah, Brian, I think you're absolutely right with this idea that a lot of times what we think of first is like heat stroke during a heat wave or, or a drowning during a flood event. But a lot of the impacts are coming through those indirect pathways. So as one example, heat can trigger things like asthma attacks and heart attacks. And then you also, in some of the research that I'm involved in right now, we're seeing some pretty clear evidence that among the elderly, hospitalization rates go up around the time a hurricane hits from things like um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, and asthma and some other respiratory outcomes. So in some cases, the, the climate-related exposure kind of directly directly affects your body, but in some cases, it's even just the process of your body having to, to deal with that. So when you're in extreme temperature, your body does a lot of work to stay at a safe temperature. And if, if, you, if it fails at that and your temperature gets too high, you get into heat stroke, but you can even have health effects when it stays safe just because of all that extra strain on your cardiovascular system and other parts of your body that come through. Um, so I think some of those pathways and then even larger pathways that come through from, from things like the damage to, to um, infrastructure and power outages and things like that that come from some of the disasters. Right. I was thinking that probably the downstream effects of what happens to the places we live in um, when the infrastructure is torn apart would have effects on people's health as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And thinking about all the power outages from the recent yes. hurricanes. Yes. Um, well, so kind of, kind of turning a bit, are there some ways that the climate change um, could be actually good for human health? For example, if um, folks traditionally live in or are living in cold regions, um, could they now have more days of the year that they can go outside and be physically active? This is a great question because I live in Chicago and I'm like, hey, is it so bad? I'm like, maybe we'll get some more summer. <laughs> kind of news you can use here, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, no, I think that this is a really good point. And, and there are definitely some risk from cold weather, like um, hypothermia is a really direct one. But then there are also some, again, when your body is trying to deal with those colder temperatures, it actually narrows its, its blood vessels so that the more of your blood kind of stays and keeps the core of your body warm. And that means that your blood pressure goes up and so then you can have stroke and things like that. So yeah, there's certainly things on both sides of the extremes if you're talking about temperature. And then there are winter conditions, like you get ice on the road and somebody falls or, or has an accident and, and maybe somebody breaks their hip. And a lot of times that can aggravate into never really fully recovering if you're elderly. But I think it's really important for all of this to remember that some of the danger isn't just from us getting these extremes. With climate change, part of it is that we're going to see things that we haven't seen before and things mm -hmm. that we're not adapted to right. and that we're not used to. So sometimes these conditions might be just a little bit less dangerous if they happen somewhere where those conditions aren't unheard of compared to somewhere that's never seen those. Um, we see pretty clear evidence that there's some adaptation to these extremes in different places based on what their climate is right now. And some of that might be because they've already adapted to what they normally see. So like in Phoenix, there are not a lot of homes without air conditioning, right? So if, if Seattle saw heat conditions like Phoenix gets in a typical summer right now, the health impacts would be so much higher there because they're not adapted to that. Um, here in Colorado, where I live now, we get a lot of snow and people all know how to drive in the snow, right? Where I grew up in, in Virginia near the coast, we almost never got snow. So like one inch and everything's shut down, right? Absolutely. So there's that level of adaptation. So part of what's scary, I think, about climate change is we'll definitely get some dangerous conditions more often, but even more worrying is we're getting those in places that aren't used to them and that aren't prepared for them. 
And certainly I think that places will adapt as they see those conditions more and more often, but it, it seems really unlikely that they'll keep up. I think there'll be all these growing pains as we have conditions that cause a lot of health impacts mm. and other impacts. And then yes, after that, we adapt to that new condition, but then it just keeps getting a little bit worse. So I think that adaptation point plays in with the question about like, yes, we'll get Huh. Some better conditions with cold, but the fact that the heat is something you haven't seen before is maybe really worrying. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area, and, and it actually did snow every year, and we still <laughs> didn't know what the heck to do about it, and everyone freaked out and went nuts, and everything got canceled. Right. And I moved to Chicago, and I was like, ah, nine inches, whatever, and it's all plowed by like 7 a.m. So you can be... a <laughs> You can be exposed to something every year and still not be able to adapt to it, apparently. Um, but I was wondering, you know, when you talk about adaptation, um, are you talking about at like the at the like governance level, mm. at the city level? Or can like, do you actually mean like at a person level? Like do, do people who live in a certain climate and that's what they're used to, um, are they less able to adapt when a major temperatures, let's say, swing happens than someone who is used to that, say, high temperature from living in the South. Right. Yeah. Um, it can be at all those levels. Mm -hmm. So at the even at the physiological level, when your body gets exposed over a period of a few weeks to, mm -hmm. to heat, for example, it it can acclimatize to that a little bit. So you start sweating at a lower temperature and you do some other things that um, that that help your body kind of handle and stay in a safe range. Um, but then at the, at the individual level, you can have kind of behavior changes too. I mean, you were just talking, we were just talking about the driving example. That's at the level of an individual knowing what to do in that, right? right? But certainly there are things that come in at the level of the built infrastructure of a place. So how are the houses built and do they have central AC or do they have um, really good heat in the winter, things mm -hmm. like that. And then also for, for how people have prepared for things. So you have much better preparations at the public health level and a lot more thinking about um, hurricanes hitting in Florida and in New Orleans than you would maybe even in New York City. So even though they're affected occasionally, just because the hits come so often in some place like Florida, they've thought about that a lot more and they might have um, buildings and building codes that are kind of geared to, to, to adapt that. And that's happening at the government and policy level. Mm. So could you describe some of your um, personal research on climate and health? Yeah, of course. Um, I've really been focusing a lot, as I mentioned earlier, on climate-related disasters, particularly heat waves and then tropical cyclones. And these are both disasters that kind of repeat. Like, you don't just get it once, like maybe you mm -hmm. did with the, the big oil, BP oil spill that happened a few years ago, where that was kind of a something that looked Hopefully just like itself. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times we can we can look at these events that have repeated a lot. And if you go back enough years, you have lots of cases. And so you can look and see what patterns tend to repeat and what things kind of stood out for certain events. So that's really what I focus on, taking a, a lot of years and then taking a lot of places and a lot of these events and looking to see on average what kinds of risk we get. And um, I tend to focus on doing things that are at the community scale. So across the whole community or across a large group of people like, like 
everybody who's insured by Medicare in the community? How do we see rates change? So we've got one really interesting study that's under review right now. It's led by my for former student, Dr. Maylin Yan, and it was part of her dissertation research. She goes through and looks at hospitalizations for cardiovascular and respiratory outcomes for people who were insured with Medicare. And she looks at that right around the time when a tropical cyclone hit. And she's got over a decade worth of data and over 100 cities that she's bringing in. So, so we're really able to see these patterns and how they play out over lots and lots of events. And then that helps us see what might be the risk for the events that happen next year that happen kind of in 20 years or 50 years or down the road um, if we're looking into the future. Another piece. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. Keep um, so we a lot of my research does focus on kind of what's happening right now, just like that. So we're looking at storms that have already happened, but I do do a little bit as well, trying to project what might happen in the mm. future with this. And for that, I work with atmospheric scientists and at wow. CSU, I'm at Colorado State University, and we kind of have a wealth of that. We've got one of the best atmospheric science departments in the, in the world, probably. And then we're right down the street from the, from the National Center for Atmospheric uh, research, which is in Boulder. And so those are wonderful resources to come in and work on that. And then the last piece of what I do, I really love open source software. So I make a lot of tools and create open source uh, data sets that focus on these questions of how we assess exposure to that. Because epidemiologists, especially environmental ones, we're always concerned about how we measure exposure and if we're doing that in a thoughtful way. So I've done a lot of work on that and then um, that kind of tickles that part of my brain for making these tools and doing open source software work. Excellent. That's really neat. Um, so what, what was it that led you to, to this topic for your work? Uh, to some extent, I got lucky. As a graduate student, my department chair connected me with a professor who was working on air pollution and health. And that's something that, that kind of is in that Venn diagram with climate and health for sure. And uh, she was just a wonderful person to work with. This is Michelle Bell at Yale University. And I probably would have enjoyed working with her on whatever she wanted to work on. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. But then um, I, I've had the chance to do some other things along the way. And I've really stayed in, in it because, first of all, I think it's really important. And it's something that, that we're really going to have to address. But it's also really intellectually stimulating in terms of the methods you have to use for it and, and the, the way that you think about it. And then also you get the chance to work on these interdisciplinary teams and really talk with people who are experts in other areas like atmospheric science or communication and think, it, think it about things across a, a large scale. So I guess that's part of it. And then for the tropical cyclones piece, maybe I have a little bit more of an origin story there. Yeah, so, let's hear it. I grew up in Born South in the eye of a hurricane. I, well, not far, right? Is that Hamilton? <laughs> no, that was just, that was oh. me just waxing. I think that was the Rolling Stones. I don't know. Temple Jack Flash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so I grew up in southeastern Virginia, Suffolk, which is just kind of like one county away from the coast. And uh, we would always get hurricanes coming in there. And there was always this excitement of, you know, like the tying down the lawn furniture. And then I was on the farm, so you're having to do all this stuff with the farm equipment. Uh -huh. But just these massive, powerful things coming through was so fascinating. And then when I was a freshman, I was at NC State in North Carolina. And we had Hurricane Floyd come in my freshman year. And I actually, um, I had a scholarship there. It was called the Park Scholarship. But, but they did a lot of things for the group of fellows with that scholarship and they took us out that spring to tour eastern North Carolina and to talk with a lot of the people affected by that like the the people who were working on making hog lagoons better so that hmm. they wouldn't get all the flooding from that so that really sparked an interest and helped see like all of the pathways oh. that that these kinds of events can take in affecting 
society in general, not just health, but any of the, cool. these, these aspects. That's a really I love that. I love that question. You know, I feel like we never <laughs> asked the people on this podcast, you know, what led them to do what they do. And we should do that more often. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, really cool. Interesting origin story. So, so let's talk about how do climate change researchers actually establish that health comes, health outcomes are climate related? You know, so I mean, obviously, we can't do randomized studies of hurricanes and things like that. So how do you causally link these events to health? Yeah, that's a really great question. And from a methods point of view, I think that this is the kind of question that makes this feel really interesting and intriguing to work in. So uh, just like you were mentioning, for a long time, this gold standard in science has been to do a randomized study. And that is really helpful when you can do it, because then you randomly assign treatment to all the people in the study, and you can break any connection with other factors like age or smoking status, or even these things that we can't measure, like um, what's going on in their home life, and are they really stressed about something? things like that. Um, with climate epidemiology, the treatment's really the exposure. So if we're looking at a disaster, it's this exposure to a tropical cyclone or a heat wave or something like that. And um, we can't assign those. <laughs> Even right. if we could, I think we wouldn't want to, right? We would want to just never have that mm -hmm. exposure. So we can't do that. So we really have to work with data that we observe and data we get. And uh, sometimes with that, it can be tempting to throw your hands up and just be like, well, that's really <laughs> complex data. I'm not sure we can mm -hmm. do anything about it. But for really important things that we need to understand you, you really need to start figuring out a way so there's some inspiring examples of that there's this one from Abraham Wald have you, either of you heard of him mm -mm. So we're going way back. He's a statistician in World War II, and he was put in charge of trying to figure out how to make the U.S.'s airplanes to make them more resilient so they get shot down less often. And so, of course, like he's got the important. it's really important, but he's got the least ideal data ever. You can't do a randomized <laughs> study on that. He doesn't even get all the airplanes back. He only gets back the ones that aren't shot down, right? So mm -hmm. he came up with like he drew a diagram of the outline of a plane. And it's, you can see it now on these like declassified reports from the stuff he was doing. But every time a plane came back, he would draw on that where all the bullet holes were. And then with enough planes, as they kept coming back and back, he, he could see the places where he wasn't getting any stuff on the diagram. Those mm. are the places where planes weren't making it back. So those are the places they needed to harden because oh, the planes that, Right, right. So there's the same kind of thing with climate epidemiology. You've got to think not just, okay, here's the data set that I have that I work with, you've got to think about why you got that data in the first place. What are the different factors that were contributing to, to um, certain places being exposed? And are those factors that could have affected the health outcome too and could confound the analysis when you're trying to look mm. through? So there's been a lot of really wonderful work on these types of methods in air pollution epidemiology over the past 20 years or so. And there's some really clever ways of thinking and comparing, instead of comparing different cities where you might have really different populations, to take mm -hmm. a single city and compare it to itself mm -hmm. and then do that across lots of places and pull year. those up. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's not like even though you can't randomly assign, you wouldn't want to randomly assign someone to a natural disaster, it is in many ways a natural experiment that is <laughs> yeah. not, um, you know, it just comes, I mean, sure, humans have created the pattern to make it more likely, but when it actually hits is completely up to nature, right? Um, in terms of the actual timing of it. So in some ways you have a little natural experiment where you can, yeah. you can compare one year where it hit to the year before, and you do have that nice kind of, you know, freedom from 
at least human <laughs> induced confounding, you know? Well, you're absolutely right, Brian, but there are these pieces as you think more and more about it and talk with atmospheric scientists and all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, we do have seasonal patterns in some of our health outcomes, right? Like respiratory hospitalizations tend to be much more common in the winter than they are right. in other parts of the year. Well, mm -hmm. then your hurricane season's a different part of the year. So if you're not mm -hmm. careful with how you're comparing, you mm -hmm. could make a comparison that's not really fair because we really want to sure. see what's the risk once the hurricane hit compared to if it hadn't hit that same mm -hmm. time and in that same mm -hmm. place and all of that. So yeah, I think you're right that we do have some aspects we can really play with in terms of the natural experiment component, but there are some of these time variables that come into play. Um, that was so interesting and I, I, my mind is still turning on the outline of the plane and thinking <laughs> about know, right? how, how you operationalize where you know where the outline is and is some of that the conversations kind of with the atmospheric scientists and things where you know kind of what the constraints might be where things are yeah, a lot of times it comes down to talking with them and, and figuring these things out. So I guess one, one other example, one of our studies we're looking from the late 80s to 2005, and it turns out that for this is a study of, of hurricanes and other tropical cyclones. And for a lot of these storms, they can follow these kind of multi-year patterns where you'll get years with lots of them and maybe more intense ones, and then you'll get years with less. And some of that's tied into things like El Nino, and some of it's tied into those other kind of longer term things. Mm -hmm. And so so uh, we were doing this study where we were comparing with other the, the times when a hurricane hit with other years in our study when it didn't hit. And uh, talking with atmospheric scientists, we realized that like one end of our study was in a really hot period, that kind of 2004 and 2005, when we're getting lots of things going on because of atmospheric science or, or, or uh, because of these kind of like long-term patterns. But then also we have to worry about that in terms of changes of mortality rates and population size and all of that in our study cities. So we did a lot of work with um, kind of doing negative control analysis to make sure that our comparisons weren't accidentally causing us to see things that weren't really there. But yeah, exactly like you were saying on it, it comes in a lot with um, talking with people who are experts in all these different areas. And, and just for our non non epi audience, can can you expand just a bit on what a negative control? Oh sure, yeah, and I'll give the example here. So um, sometimes you can take the same experiment that you did and then try running it when you shouldn't see anything and make sure there's not a, some other factor coming in that makes it look like there's something when there isn't. So it might be clear if I talk about this with the example that we did. Uh, so this is also led by my student, Dr. Yan. Uh, she went through and she took her exact process that she did to study these health risks from tropical cyclones. And every time there was a tropical cyclone for this analysis, she reassigned the date of it to be two weeks earlier. Now that's a period when like, maybe you have the start of the system, but you have no idea where it's gonna head. It's not having any influence on the community, but any of these seasonal or long-term trends, if they're confounders, those would still play in the same way. So she did that to make sure that we got null results when we did that compared to the results that we were getting when we ran it with the real storm date. That's awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. Sure. Very cool. Well, so in the intro, I mentioned how certain populations and communities can be disproportionately affected by climate change, by the climate in general, um, and how existing disparities can be exacerbated. So could you expound a little bit about on that? Yeah, one of the big ones that we see in terms of uh, vulnerability to some of these outcomes, especially for heat and tropical cyclones, 
is among the elderly compared to mm. looking at the general population. Yeah, a lot of the pathways really might be that you get a trigger that kind of sets off an acute exacerbation of something that's a chronic condition. So you have chronic respiratory conditions like asthma or COPD, and then you get kind of like an attack of that when you get these exposures, then when you get the stress that plays in and all of that. So with heat, we see much stronger relationships among people who are 65 and older and 75 and older than we do among the general population. And mm -hmm. as we were starting our talk today, you kind of mentioned this idea about flood zones too and that comes into play too i mean where your home is and what it's built of those can all play a role in the susceptibility as well and then there's the idea of resiliency like what something like that happens especially in the context of disaster to what extent can you build back and, and get back and, and what's the level of stress for that do you have to leave your community completely i mean that that can create a lot of additional psychological stress as well so i mm. think any of the things with kind of socioeconomics can play in yeah. as as a vulnerability piece through some of those pathways as well absolutely so would you say i mean are are poor communities more likely to be in flood zones is that how i, I i'm going to assume the answer is yes just naively asking because that's the history of of society um but is that true i mean are are communities of color, for example, more likely to be in the flood zone areas? Certainly seen that way in uh, New Orleans, you know, during Katrina. You know, right? I, you're getting a little bit past my expertise here. <laughs> I would assume yes as well. And certainly for some exposures like air pollution, I think I see that pattern. Um, mm. But for some of these, there might be a little bit of a different pattern. Like um, sometimes those oceanfront properties no, are not going to be they're not mm -hmm. going to be some of the the ones that that are cheap to buy um there was actually a really interesting study done a little while ago looking at heat and air conditioning how air conditioning kind of modifies that and that's one of these ones that's really tricky to look at because some of the patterns for air conditioning use are really closely tied to patterns for socioeconomics and um for they actually looked in California and they found this place where some of the richer areas were near the coast and less likely to have air conditioning. So it reversed mm. that pattern and they could look huh. at that and split that apart a little bit more. But I think in general, you're probably right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very neat. Thank you. Um, so, so we're kind of at to the tail end of what was for a lot of us a very hot summer. Um, and you've talked a little bit about what some of these health risks are um, associated with different kind of weather patterns. Um, what are some of the health risks that are caused by heat specifically? Well, of course, heat strips one, and there's been some work on the occupational health side, even looking at people who work in construction or agriculture or something like that, who are exposed to more of this than, than normal. But I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, heat can cause a big strain on your body, even if you don't get into dangerous levels with your core body temperatures. And that can really trigger a lot of things, particularly for people who are elderly or for, for people who might have chronic conditions already. Um, so I think it, it People outside of climate epidemiology, I think sometimes might be surprised by this, but we actually have gotten some really large health impacts from certain severe heat waves. So like in 1995, there was a Chicago heat wave yeah. that was yeah, associated with like 700 excess deaths. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a huge number. And you don't have the same infrastructure damage that you do with a tropical, a tropical cyclone or something like that, but the health impact is there. And that one wasn't unique. In 2003, you had something like that in Europe and then in 2010 in Russia. And so, um, yeah, they can, they can have really massive impacts and it's really something that's happening more among the elderly in terms of where the impacts play out. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of the, the Chicago. I was before I lived in Chicago, but I know there was a really <laughs> interesting book written about that. I can't remember who uh, wrote it. Yeah. About that cr- crazy Chicago. Eric Kleinenberg, I, I think. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Well, I study aging and, um, you know, so this has obviously always been really fascinating to me, but just how events like this, you know, even if you're looking at a tail end of a distribution of the most vulnerable, I mean, one 10 degree heat wave could just kill so many people. It's just, it's heartbreaking and, and uh, scary to think that it's happening more and more as, as we get hotter and hotter. Um, so, you know, so obviously your research has implications for policy, right? Um, so let me ask you this. If you could change one thing at a policy level to address climate change that would improve human health, this is a hard question, I know, but <laughs> what would it be? And what would we um, do about it? Yeah, so I, there's so many things you can do. So I think I picked one, I pick one that, I know it make a difference. I don't know if this would be the top one or not, but I think it is really important that we continue the efforts that we're taking to limit the health impacts of climate-related exposures right now. So of course we're facing this change into the future, but it's not like something that we're not seeing right now. I mean, we see these impacts right now and we're studying them right now. So the more we can learn about what works for limiting those right now and applying that, the better place we're gonna be as we move forward. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah, I think that's really important. And I also like that because that's an area where I see a lot of hope. Sometimes it can be a little bit kind of depressing to think about we have this big looming thing coming. But um, this is an area where if you look over the past hundred years for some of the climate related exposures, there's just been so much done to the point that we can't even kind of conceptualize what it would have been like before. So an example, you, you were talking about Hurricane Laura earlier. So right, that hit Louisiana just a week or so ago. Um, if, if that had happened 100 years ago, some of those people in those coastal communities could have gone to bed that night not knowing what was going to hit them and like woken up. You read these right. stories from storms yeah. there that people wake up and they step out of bed into water on like the second floor of the house or their house is lifted off the foundations and it's floating away. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so inspiring how much the changes in technology and the changes in communication and policy mm-hmm. in terms of, of mandating evacuations and pieces like that. Like I think the National Hurricane Center had the track for Laura's landfall within like a kilometer or something. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a lot of hope, I think, in us thinking a lot about trying to limit these impacts right now. And then that's going to serve us really well as we go into the future. Do you think that at being prepared is enough? I mean, like, I, you know, I've, I should say that my, uh, my wife's family lives in Texas, you know, in the Houston area. So we were following this very closely. Yeah. And, um, you know, luckily it moved to the east of Houston. But um, there was a lot of talk about how if this hits Houston, <laughs> like Houston's donezo, you know, and what, like, is there even a way that you can prepare for, you know, gigantic hundred year storms coming, well, previously hundred year storms now come in every five years for these major cities? Like, or are we just right. like, just, well, there's yeah, nothing we no. can do about it. <laughs> no, we have we haven't gotten all the way clearly. Like there there are mm-hmm. still all these impacts that we come in, that come in. I mean with Laura, I think that they're they're finding out now that there were a lot of deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning from the power being out oh, and, wow. and just the fact of, you know, using a generator in a place that that, that creates this con- dangerous conditions. So no, it, it's not solved all the way, but I I think 
the the kind of message of hope there is that it has saved so much. Like like I think you're looking at mm -hmm. thousands of deaths over the past hundred years based on being able to forecast and move people out of the way when these come. And so that doesn't in any way, of course, mean <laughs> that we're all the way there. But I think we're, I think that's the path we need to continue. But do you on. think mass evacuations on a like? two, three year schedule are realistic, you know, going forward or uh, I'm seriously asking, or is no, it like, it's a good you know, coastal areas of the U.S. will no longer be inhabitable in 20 years, you know? Right. No, it's a good question. And it's a question some communities are already asking. So mm -hmm. there's this wonderful book that came out a couple of years ago now, I think called Chesapeake Requiem that looked mm -hmm. at Tangier Island and the people there. And if that whole small, very tight community would have to completely evacuate its home. And I think some of the, the uh, coastal communities in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, like Ocracoke Island and um, Hatteras Island are, are looking at those same questions. If we keep getting hit again and again, and we keep have to having to evacuate. And sometimes when we come back, we keep having to rebuild. Do, do we rebuild here? Do we move somewhere else? Mm. Yeah, what, so with that, with the kind of the, the issue of climate migration and kind of the, the huge costs and maybe infeasibility for a, for a lot of folks to be able to just leave yeah. their house behind yeah, is probably value isn't going to be that great if the whole community decides mm -hmm. together that they can't uh, live in that place anymore. Like, are there... What, what's on the horizon with that? And, you know, is... Is there anything, uh, you know, maybe that is the good thing because then health effects may be diminished. So is that, there's maybe some good in that? Yeah, I don't know. Again, we're getting a little bit towards the edges of what I do, but I can certainly appreciate it from, from you know, it's kind of a problems. personal perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up, I mentioned I grew up on a farm and so some places are so tied to their communities and, and to the place where they are. And, and so that's, a hard choice for anyone, but there's certain groups where it's even going to be harder. I went to a really interesting workshop on climate and the elderly a few years ago that was done jointly by the EPA and, and NIH and some other organizations, and they had brought in a lot of Native American communities, and they were talking about this idea for some of their communities, and they're so tied to that, to the place, like that is so important for their community, and this idea of, of um, climate-related migration. It was really interesting to hear, like, what a struggle that is, even thinking about that needing to be a possibility in some cases. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a huge challenge. Um, so kind of shifting just a bit um, and thinking about images. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of the whole issue of climate change started with this image of a polar bear on a shrinking <laughs> ice cap. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's been some kind of communications more recently that maybe that set back the whole topic and field somewhat because uh, it kind of took away the human health side of it. Mm -hmm. um, do you have thoughts on how you might reframe those those core issues of climate change? Do you have an image for <laughs> that we should have instead? We're really asking know. a lot from you, Brooke. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Can I solve this? <laughs> no, no, I can't solve all of it. Um, but I can articulate how important it is, maybe. So yeah, I don't know if I have a specific image, but maybe I'll spin this a little bit. I, I think that we are seeing the, the importance of addressing these huge problems and, and sometimes making sacrifices when we need to with the current pandemic. I mean, I think that maybe this is really giving us a view of, of the kinds of paths 
that we're going to need to take in the future to combat this and, and a recognition that sometimes, yes, we'll, we might need to make a sacrifice right away. And we should trust the scientists who are really doing a lot of work to study this and trust their advice, even if that means doing something that's a little less pleasant immediately to try to prevent worse outcomes later. Ain't that a theme across all of our epidemiology work? Huh? <laughs> These days, especially. Yeah, I have a really good point. Um, all right. Well, I think we're going to ask you one last really difficult question here, <laughs> just to tie it all together. Okay. All right. You know, and we're kind of, we've been circling around this, but I, I think, um, you know, I feel like one of the big issues with climate change is people think it's just a problem that's too big for any one person to do anything about, you know, I mean, exactly what you just said. And, uh, you know, it's going to take sacrifice um, and it's going to take community level participation to do anything about it. But, you know, but, but people might say, well, what about me? Like, what can I do, you know, as a person, one person? So what do you recommend that the average person could do to combat climate change? That'd be the most effective if everyone did it at a population level. A vote, honestly, it's a global issue and we can do personal steps to try to help, but a lot of the steps that need to happen are global or national, or even at the, the level of your community, your public health department, mm -hmm. things like that. And, and we just, we need leaders who can take the lead on figuring out and carrying out these global approaches and be our voice at, at, at kind of like creating- Who believe it's real, right? Well, who, tr who, who trusts that people are looking at the science and are doing it in a thoughtful way. And right, yeah, and have that trust that there is an expert on this and I need to listen to that expert. Um, yeah, so that, that would be my short answer for that. Vote. All right, go vote, and, everybody. <laughs> and we're less than two months away from a that's right. election. Two months away. Well, regardless of your country. I mean, vote if you're yeah, in the U.S., but, but anywhere. Absolutely. Good point. Thank you. Okay, well, I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. So I'd like to thank Anna for co-leading this conversation and Brooke for joining us on this very interesting episode. So before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in December this year. Unfortunately, we held out as long as we could on this decision, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the annual meeting will be virtual this year. Um, you know, we of course are gonna do the safest thing as epidemiologists, right? Uh, but it's still gonna be great. And hopefully because it's virtual, it'll increase access to the conference. Um, membership at SER also gets you access to the SER library for learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. <laughs>